It's time for Run, Bandy, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. This is a this is what I would call kind of a classic Milwaukee bar. You know, the furnishings, it's very clean in here. Um, there's little beer signs on the walls and funky plastic lights. Chris Radish, Lori's biographer, is showing me around a bar called Trax. It's a popular cop hangout, and in the 70s, it had a reputation. I used to drive by here on my way to college. It looked scary in here, and then there were all these rumors about this was the place to go for drugs. This was a big drug hangout and wild, and I didn't have time for that nonsense. Okay, <laughs> so why are Chris and I at Trax, this sketchy cop bar just west of the Milwaukee River? Well, first of all, this location becomes a big part of Lori's story. And it all started one night. I can just imagine her in some sort of fabulous pantsuit, maybe one shoulder off in that ship brown color that was popular in the late 70s. Strange that Lori was hanging out with cops even though she just went fired. But she was 22. This was her whole social scene. Everybody's cracking off-color jokes, ordering rounds of cheap drinks, Jaeger shots, white Russians. They're doing sloppy two-steps on the dance floor. But then, Lori notices a bunch of cops kind of huddled over some photos that are splayed out in front of them. She leans in to take a closer look, and she's horrified. And I said, what the heck is that? And he's like, that's the annual Trax picnic. The annual Trax picnic. It was a big event held in the park across from the Trax bar. But the photos in question don't make it look like any picnic I've ever been to. The crowds were massive. Police officers are on stage, totally nude. That was Timothy Meyer, the Shepherd Express reporter you heard from in the last episode. The photos show this giant drunken frat party disguised as a picnic. There was sexual acts such as masturbation going on on stage. Both women and men were nude at these. In addition, there was believed to be known drug dealers in the crowds and selling drugs. There was, you know, uniformed cops making sure that nobody was going to get arrested. Even for the swinging 70s, this was a bit much. I couldn't believe my eyes because, you know, the women were getting fired for forgetting to carry a flashlight, and here the guys are dancing naked in the park, and nothing is done. They're dancing in front of children. This is a public place. These photos were exactly the kind of evidence that Lori needed to put the corrupt cops and the Milwaukee PD in their place. So what did she do? Somehow, and nobody's quite sure how she did this, Lori got a copy of those photos, and then she put them in a very safe place. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Cruoriatis. Episode 3. The story just kind of unfurled that uh, there were these photos of this wild party that had taken place near a tavern, and a lot of police had been involved in it, and that there was, you know, drinking and... Uh, drug use and all this kind of uh, outlandish behavior. This is Georgia Pabst again, the reporter who was helping Lori with her quest to get back at the police. Remember, Lori had been fired over the whole thing with Judy's ass and the tiny butt end of a joint. 
And from her perspective, none of it rose to the level of Chief Harold Breyer killing her professional dreams. The double standard that the police were applying to men and women cops, it just seemed crazy. And it was right out in the open. Nothing like the usual double standards, which can be kind of confusing, right? Like, is that happening to me because I'm a woman, or am I overthinking it? No. In the Milwaukee Police Department, double standards were about as subtle as those gold lame bathing suits that everybody was wearing in the 70s. So Lori had a lot to work with. She'd figured out Chief Breyer's dirty trick, his underhanded way of keeping women off the force. He just hired the minimum number of women to keep his federal funding, and then he used whatever excuse to fire them just as quickly. She knew about all the corruption in the department as well, the drugs, the kickbacks, all of it. And now, with these naked tracks party photos hidden away, she had a secret ace in the hole. But so far, all Lori had really done was go public. In order to take it to the next level, she had to make it official. As women were finding out back then, sometimes the best weapon against discrimination is good old-fashioned paperwork. Because otherwise, it's just a complaint, you know. But if you put it on paper and you file it with the EOC, that's something. And that has a lot of credibility. And so I said, when you file the complaint, let's talk. You know how in your early 20s, it feels like everything's changing so fast, even if not that much is actually happening? In Lori's life, there really were a lot of hairpin turns. And this moment was one of them. Lori was going to be an avenger. All those rigid rules that Chief Breyer had, they were just ways of pushing women and minorities out of his cop club. But in order to tell the police department's secrets, she needed other women to join her with their voices. So she turned to her squad, the female cadets from the academy. And one of them stepped up. My name is Patricia Lipsy. I was a police officer for Milwaukee Police Department. Before Patricia became a police officer, she was considering a more glamorous career path just like Lori. I was interested in getting into modeling and acting. I entered a couple of pageants. I was in the Miss Black Wisconsin pageant, but I was sort of young at the time, and my parents didn't want me to go to California. (laughs) So I'm like, well, what else can I do? And my brother had heard that the police department was hiring. He asked me to take him to apply. So while I was there, I decided, well, let me fill out an application also. He failed the test and I ended up passing. She was doing really well, but like Lori, Patricia had made a mistake. She showed up at an all-cop party. And at that party, there was a recruit who seemed to be sleeping with the wife of a detective. Now the cops wanted that recruit gone. So they were trying to get me to say that I knew about this affair, which I had no idea that they were seeing each other. You know, they thought I would just go along with it to get this guy terminated, and I refused to do that. And then they started coming after me, and that's when I started having trouble, like, every day. The cops did whatever they could to make her job miserable. They tried to discourage me by having me work alone. I had to walk the streets by myself at night. They wouldn't allow me to work with anyone. 
they thought I would be afraid to be out there alone by myself. And that wouldn't have bothered me if it was just a hazing thing, but they were trying to break me all the way down and discourage me, and I just refused to let that happen. So I, I, I just said, if you guys want to get rid of me, you're going to have to terminate me because I refuse to quit. So the cops tried another tactic. They just screamed at her. Full Metal Jacket. That's the movie it reminded me of. They would stand right like a half inch from my face and scream and yell at me for every little thing. Trisha Lipsy also saw a lot of really bad cop behavior. Not just salacious partying, but abuse of power. Brutality. They call it the elevator ride. That's where if you were some type of criminal and once they got you on the elevator, you would get beat up really bad. Then when you get off the elevator, they straighten you up and just act like nothing happened. There was a scene where they had this guy in a paddy wagon with their knee in his back and on his neck and stuff. And I said then, you know, it's only going to be a matter of time. They're going to end up killing somebody. Each incident that I witnessed, I told the sergeants about it at the district and so forth, but they would have me either change my report or they wouldn't let me file anything to tell about what I had witnessed or what I had seen. So why would you want to stay under those circumstances, the way that they were treating you? Well, I figure if we have people like that on the police force, there needed to be someone there to fight a system that was corrupt because the way I saw things were being done I found out a lot of this stuff is routine. It was more than just a few bad apples. It was like it was the whole tree all the way down to the roots. It was just messed up. With all that Patricia had witnessed, Lori probably thought she had a solid case. She filed her official complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1981. The feminism of the 70s had led to a lot of change, but that didn't mean that discrimination had disappeared. And the EEOC is where women went when they wanted justice. Here's Kate Blunt. She was the commission's district director when Lori's complaint came in. There weren't a big flood that I recall coming from police and fire departments, and I'm not surprised by that. It is much more difficult to stand out. You know, you don't want to rock the boat. You want to be able to fit in. You don't want to be viewed as, you know, the bitch, etc., Kate Blunt got a lot of complaints from places like banks, where standing up for yourself as a woman was hard but not impossible. Law enforcement was different. Being the bitch in a cop shop, that was dangerous business. It's a, it's a vicious circle because women need to get into those jobs to prove they can do the jobs, that they can have a positive impact. So that's the whole point of places like EEOC, to get the women in the door to prove what the impact can be. And Lori did not stop there. Her next step was meeting with an assistant U.S. attorney, a Fed. When she told him about the tracks photos, the nudity in the park, the violations and lawlessness, he was intrigued. He might have thought that those photos could prove that men and women on the force were being treated differently. We had the chance to present our case, but 
I felt that they would use any means necessary to try to stop our stories from getting out there. There were not many people willing to go up against the department at the time. You know, our hopes were up high, and I thought, well, finally, somebody's listening. Lori had a hopeful, almost childish way of thinking that if she just told the right people, things would get better. So what happened after she filed the EEOC complaint? So she files a complaint, and obviously word of it started sneaking out, and she started getting a variety of horrible threats. Ben Benick, we're going to get you. And then she found a dead rat under her windshield wiper on her car because she was the rat who was ratting on the police department. Scary stuff. That's horrible. Gross also. Um, (laughs) I hate rats. Okay. Linda Reeves, that other friend of Lori's, she has an idea of why the cops might have been scared. Somebody pissed her off, and this was one of the ways I believe, in my mind, she was trying to get even. Catching some of these supervisors in some compromising situations, and they wanted those photos. And Lori had, had did something with them to keep them from getting them. She could blackmail people with those pictures, from what I heard. Well, the cops probably thought she was going to blackmail them, but she's never said that she was going to do that. She was just trying to get even in a lawful way. But maybe when you're living behind the thin blue line where the only good rat is a dead rat, that qualified as blackmail. Here's Lori herself summing it up on Larry King. Well, I was was a Milwaukee police officer, and um, while there were several things going on at the time, I was going to be a federal witness against the chief of police. Um, I had sex discrimination claim against the police department, and... um, So you think they were out to get you? Well, it, it certainly did look that way. Lori had really pushed herself to be as diligent as she could be about getting justice. And she was feeling good about her chances. But you know the government. You file a claim, not a goddamn thing happens for a long, long time. Lori felt like the little cartoon character that's trying to punch a taller character and just being held off by a hand on her forehead. That's bureaucracy. Particularly at the EEOC, which was in a weird spot back then. Here's the district director, Kate Blunt, again. Unfortunately, this particular case was filed in late 1980 when there was no director of the EEOC. There were several acting directors. Basically, their job, from my perspective, was to eviscerate and to close down offices and make EEOC dysfunctional. All Lori could do was sit around and wait. She was feeling purposeless, like she did after high school, before she became a cop. She was getting depressed. And then she was pissed that Chief Harold Breyer was making her feel depressed. Maybe she had played this whole cop thing wrong. Should she have tried to be just like the men? Was it possible to be both feminine and ballsy? To alleviate her anxiety over this big question, plus, of course, the dead rat and the lost job and all the rest, she fell back on bad habits. I'm talking about the rebel teen habits, drinking too much, maybe drugs. And there is no better person to really luxuriate in bad habits with than Judy Zess. I'm talking about French-speaking, Switzerland-studying Judy Zess, the one she got into trouble with the first time, the one who had gotten her fired, 
I think I mentioned that she was someone to keep your eye on. Lori's old friend from grade school, Joanne, she didn't get it. She knew that Judy was bad news. Everybody in their own way knows that you've got a really good friend who's got another friend that you're not, you don't know, you just don't have a magnetism there. There's just, you would never call them and say, hey, let's go out or let's let's do something or come on over or anything like that. She's just not, she wasn't that kind of a girl. But even though Judy was the one who narked Lori out to actual narks, they both needed a buddy to escape reality with. And Judy, she really knew how to escape. She was fun. She was outgoing. Obviously was a bit of a party girl. Hey, any port in the storm, you know, Judy's here. We're going to be friends. We're going to get through this together. They were both looking for work as well. At one point, Lori was thinking she might apply for the Air Force. But after she went to talk to them and told them about her discrimination suit, they were like, huh, wait a second. I don't think you can apply until that's cleared up. More men, more bullshit rules. French-speaking Judy wasn't into that Air Force thing anyway. It seemed like Lori was starting to get some sort of weird uniform fetish. On top of all this, Lori wasn't going to get her unemployment check anymore from the cops. So she really needed money. And Judy had creative ideas about how to get it. Judy's way of making money from what Lori told me was that she called every guy that she was sleeping with and said she was pregnant and needed 200 bucks for an abortion. So she ended up with, I think, $800. So she was reeling in the money from all her little side jobs with the men she knew. And now Judy had another idea. A job that was the antithesis of being barrier-breaking, glass-ceiling-shattering cops. A job that was about cartoonish femininity, transforming yourself into a woodland creature for men's pleasure. And this time, not a baby deer. A bunny. She said it was a way a woman could make really great, quick money. Lori was going to be a playboy bunny. I mean, talk about an identity crisis and a uniform fetish. Parking was scarce, as was air, as the crowd met a variety of blondes, brunettes, former stewardesses, lawyers, waitresses, secretaries, and a host of other occupations deserted to become bunnies. You've probably heard of Playboy bunnies. They served customers drinks at the Playboy clubs, which were a chain of restaurants designed to be real-life versions of the fantasy world in the pages of Playboy magazine. The bunnies wore strapless, corset-like bodysuits, bunny ears, and bow ties. Most look at their new job as a challenge and not as exploitation. I think it's going to be the greatest thing. This is going to be the place to be. This is like a dream. Lori worked at the Lake Geneva Playboy Club, south of Milwaukee. Glitter curtains, deep couches. These clubs were all over the country now. They'd been built for a newly hedonistic America in the swinging 60s. And by the time Lori walked in there in 1980, the smell of old cigarettes was thick in the Playboy carpets, and the fake trees inside the restaurant were dusty and just sort of starting to look sad. The club in Lake Geneva was basically a destination for city folks from Milwaukee to have a pricey meal and drinks on the lake. It was a novelty, a tourist attraction, getting served by a Playboy bunny with a little cotton tail. Now, the original tails were made of yarn, but drunk customers thought it was funny to try to light them on fire. So by the time Lori became a bunny, the tails were made of white fake fur. They add perfume onto their bunny tails so that when they pass by the customer's tables, they get a whiff of this beautiful perfume and it it clings there much longer. Lori did the whole thing. She wore the tail, 
She even did the bunny dip, which was the name for the way Playboy Club waitresses delivered their drinks. So we go backwards, doing the bunny dip. Arch your back like that. It brings you much closer to the table, and then you can just bring it down. Back facing the table, head turned to make eye contact with the male guests. Your legs doing a small curtsy in five-inch heels, all while lightly setting down a full drink without a spill. You better give me a big tip after that. Here's Chris. You know, empowered women would say, who cares? I, you know, it's my body. I'm beautiful. If you want to tip me $50 for giving you a cup of coffee, I'll take your money. Lori knew the power she had in her beauty. She knew the power she had in her intellect and the power she had to combine those two things. Was the Playboy Club in the 80s the place to do that? Come on. It was not. Especially because Lori's a woman who always seemed sort of ahead of her time. Working there was just a dumb little experiment that didn't work out. She had no way of knowing, of course, that the label, Playboy Bunny, would come back to haunt her later, after Christine Schultz's death. At the time, it was simpler. Lori didn't want to just be a sex object. She liked men, she liked being noticed, but she wanted to be an equal in a relationship. I know we haven't talked much about Lori's boyfriends yet, but they haven't been important. Suffice to say, she had a lot of them. The truth is, she was a feminist badass, but she also had an Achilles heel. She's one of those kinds of women. I think we all have friends like this. At least I have always had a friend like this who has to have a boyfriend. They have to have a guy. And what do you know? Right after the Playboy Club, she had the biggest turning point of her very short but very twisty and turny life. This is when love walked in. In the strangest of ways, in the strangest of places. If I'm making it sound romantic, don't get your hopes up. I do mean strange. So here's what happened. She had this other friend, a single mom, also a cop, who would drink Jack Daniels all night and sort of sober up with lines of cocaine. Not a kick-ass influence. So Lori, who was still living with her shorts too tight mom and dad, would occasionally spend the night at this friend's place. One morning, when she woke up, there was a guy in the kitchen. A guy who had just spent the night with that Jack Daniels drinking single mom. This guy was Fred Schultz. Well, Fred was a blue-eyed, blonde, swaggering detective. Fred was extremely handsome and gregarious, always out on the town. Someone even nicknamed him Disco Fred. And within a second, Lori says, Disco Fred was channeling love vibes to Lori. He came from a construction family, so he was well-built, he was strong, he was confident. Just the kind of man that Lori seemed to be attracted to. Why would she go for a police officer? Especially at a time when she was fighting police officers. Well, Lori was into cops. We've established that. And maybe she saw Fred as an ally who was also an insider. Or maybe she just couldn't help being attracted to him, even though she'd met him in another woman's kitchen. He was just a notorious pussyhound. Chris says when she talked to Disco Fred for her book, she believes he actually hit on her over the phone. And I'll never forget it because I swear to God that he was flirting with me. I talked to him. I told him who I was. Oh, are you married? I'm like, oh, my God. I, I was, like, shocked, but not really shocked. Lori knew his reputation in the police department, but apparently um, that, that didn't seem to matter. 
Now, we don't have Fred's side of that anecdote, and Fred did not agree to be interviewed for this podcast. So the story we're telling is from published material and the recollections of individuals. Like, here's a recollection of Lori's. When she and Fred were in the kitchen that morning in Milwaukee, they started bantering. I wonder how many brain cells I killed last night, said Lori. Probably both of them, Fred shot back. He needed to conquer somebody, and she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and he wanted her, and he had to have her. And she was the object of envy in the police force. She was the one in the police force that everybody was saying, oh, if you could get that that Bambi. Absolutely, And yeah. yeah, He needed to hunt her, basically. Yes. Yes. Disco Fred was a funny combination of things. Really confident, but also really emotional, almost needy. That's what Patricia says. He seemed to whine a lot to me. <laughs> when, whenever he spoke, he had a quiet, whining type of voice. It worked for Lori. She really fell for Disco Fred. And maybe that's because he just wouldn't give up. He was persistent, which for somebody like Lori, I think, became an attraction wow, he really wants me. He'll do anything for me. They started jogging together. He was nice to her. He opened up the door for her. He acted like a gentleman. Lori said he'd bring her armfuls of roses, and she loved it. She'd been doted on as a kid, and she liked feeling like someone was spoiling her. She wanted to feel extravagant and chic. And within a few weeks, they decided that they wanted to move in together. But Lori and Fred probably didn't have a lot extra to spend on housing. So they leased a little two-bedroom apartment, and they needed a roommate. You'll never guess who they picked. I'll give you a hint. She speaks French. I really didn't hang with Zest much. I I was surprised to know that she was Laurencia's roommate because I didn't even think she she hung around Laurencia, but... It sort of threw me for a loop to find out that she was a roommate of theirs, you know. So Judy was working at a waterbed store called Wonderful Waterbeds. That was an interesting phase in our lives, waterbeds. (laughs) Especially when they leak. I drove by one of the buildings where they lived one day with Chris Radish. It was not impressive. Sort of like a motel just rows and rows of low-lying housing. So when they lived here, this looks like probably a place where a million other 20-somethings lived because rent was cheap and they didn't have to worry about anything but living in their little apartments and having their parties. You can imagine the way they decorated. Shag carpeting, macrame on the walls, Lori bustling around at the kitchenette. She wasn't a cook, but she loved decorating a table, just matching napkins to dinnerware. And after just a little while of playing house, Fred decided to make it official. He popped the question out of nowhere. Here's Chris Radish. She was sort of stunned, and then he said, well, I love you, don't you love me? And she thought for a minute, and she goes, well, I I guess I love you. Okay, I'll get married. Lori might have been closing the door on essential parts of herself, like her desire to stay strong and independent. In a tiny space of time, she'd gone from Lori the cop to Lori the activist to Lori the bunny to Lori the wife of a cop. The conservative life she never wanted. But she was also in love. 
So right away, the two of them got in a car, didn't tell any of their family and friends, drove to Illinois, and said, I do. Afterward, when Lori told her mom, she thought they must be joking. Then she thought they must be pregnant. In her book, Lori remembers it like this. Chris Radish is going to read it for us. My mom said, is that why you eloped? I laughed. Impossible. I married him for his vasectomy. And I'm keeping my name. I am a feminist, after all. The vasectomy thing was not totally a joke. One thing Lori was clear about with Fred was that she didn't want children. And Fred seemed totally fine with it, which was sort of surprising. Was he secretly progressive? A closet feminist? At the time, choosing not to have kids, it made people look at you funny. I remember one time I was talking to a woman at a party. You know, you ask, do you have children? What do you do? You know, the common questions. And this woman said to me, no, I I knew from the time I was a little girl that I would be a horrible mother and I didn't want to have children. And I went, well, good for you. That's really great. And she started sobbing. I said, what's wrong? She goes, you're the first person that ever said to me, good for you for knowing who you are and what you want to do. And Lori knew that about herself. And is it selfish? I don't think it's selfish to not want children. I think that she just knew that that wasn't something that she wanted to do or be. Disco Fred already had kids anyway, two boys. He was recently divorced from their mother and his wife of many years, Christine Schultz. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she's the murder victim at the center of our story. Christine worked in shipping at a water ski store. She loved animals and had a menagerie of hamsters and rabbits and pigeons. She was exhausted by all the goings-on in the divorce. Getting alimony from Fred was a process, but it had finally wrapped up and she was feeling secure. She didn't know Lori much. They'd once talked about Christine's hobby of collecting butterflies and pinning them to black velvet to admire them. I used to do that myself when I was a kid. Here's a friend of Christine's from childhood, Sheila Berry, to tell us a little bit about her when she was young. Chris was pretty, and I remember her with the pixie haircut. She was quieter. They grew up in the same town, Appleton, Wisconsin. Can you just describe what Appleton looked like? It's a long downtown, about a mile, College Avenue, that was cruisable. And that's what everybody did on Friday night and Saturday nights, too. Wasn't much else to offer girls looking for fun. There were only two religions there, Catholic and Lutheran. (laughs) Christine and her best friend would just cruise up and down College Avenue. If you looked in the car, you'd see the two of them with their hair combed to the roof. Those girls went through so much hairspray. It was the, the scent of Aquanet and... They had a parakeet, and his cage was nearest to the kitchen, and that was where they'd all get ready. And they're just fumigating the world with that hairspray. And the poor little critter fell off his perch dead one day, and it turned out that it was from all of that um, hairspray. Inhaling hairspray killed the poor little bird. Small town life. But when it was time to grow up, they were all ready to leave. Christine moved to Milwaukee after college. If you could describe how Christine must have felt moving from Appleton to Milwaukee. I I know how it affected me. I felt like I didn't want to take something out to the trash after dark. 
just because it was such a big city. Christine had her college boyfriend there, Disco Fred Schultz. He was strong, handsome, protective, a cop. I would think she would be more inclined, given her background, given where and how she was raised, to date a cop. It seems safer. It would have seemed safer. But as it turned out, living in Milwaukee might not have been safe for Christine at all. Next time on Run, Bambi, Run. The day of the murder was a a warm spring day in Wisconsin. She was in her yard, puttering in the garden. Schultz calls me because we were supposed to go pheasant hunting. And he told me he wasn't going to be able to make it because his ex-wife was killed the night before. You wake up and your bestie's telling you that somebody's been killed. I mean, it's like a, a cold glass of water in the face, but you still don't know what reality is at that point. The media seemed to think that when she was arrested, that Lori would retreat to her home, break open the window, use her subatomic machine gun, and shoot at the cops. Run, Baby, Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Krigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon, and our archivist is Megan Shuve. Field production by Emily Files. Archival audio from the CBC. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long and to Campside's operations team, Amanda Brown, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book, Run Bambi Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. 